we find in the midst of our darkness words of hope, words of comfort. So listen to Isaiah 9. I'll read verses 1 through 7. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, God humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Let me pray that God would apply his word to our lives. Father, I ask that you would speak truth to us today. We turn to your word because we are people desperate for gospel answers. We live in a world broken by sin. We have been sinned against. We see our own sin. And so, Lord, I pray that we would find forgiveness in your word. Lord, for those who, who come with, with confidence in your trustworthiness, Lord, g- give us an encouragement today. Lord, for those that come with questions or with doubts, Lord, give them answers. Lord, grant us the faith to believe, to trust in you. Father in heaven, we come praying in Jesus' name. Amen. It's not that there were really ever any good moments with her. But Mez McConnell describes his fear each night as a child. The woman his father had brought into their home was cruel and violent. Mez had come home earlier that day as an 11-year-old with test results that would determine his future, which school he would move into for his upper grades. He was too afraid to open the envelope to to know what it would be, but he, he realized that no matter what happened, he would see her violence. She'd been telling him for years that he was worthless and stupid. But surprisingly, the test results showed that he he scored in the, the 90th percentile. He had aced these tests. Still that night, he lay in his bed worried. Mez describes it. He says, The sound of silence descended over the house. Then the sounds of footsteps on the old rotten staircase with a threadbare carpet. My stomach jumped. The all-too-familiar fear came over me. Would she pass by and go to bed? Or would she stumble through the door into my room? A few seconds later, I had my answer. My fears were realized as the handle turned, the door opened, and she stood there, swaying in the doorway, drunk. So you think you're clever, do you? She stormed into the room and aimed a kick at me. I fell off the bed onto the floor and curled into a ball. The kick kicks kept coming until she tired herself out. 
Then she sat on the edge of my bed and pulled me up by my hair. Look at me, you little rat. You're nothing. You'll never be anything. Nobody loves you. Nobody ever will. She punched me hard, and the darkness came. Mez admits as a child and growing into his adult years, he was left to question why. Why would God allow such suffering in the darkness? See, our hymns, our stories are filled with light. The candles remind us that the light of the world has come, has come into the darkness. Because here at the, in Isaiah's prophecy, we read these words, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and we feel them with such great hope. We, we see them printed on the, on, the, on the fronts of the greeting cards that we share with one another. And yet these words come in the midst of horrific darkness. In the chapter before, God used the Assyrian army to bring judgment upon the nations, upon the nations of Judah and Israel. We're reminded of that in, in verse 1. You can look back there with these geographic references that we have. That in the past, God humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Speaking of Galilee of the Gentiles, speaking of the, the way that leads from the Jordan River to the sea. Now, if you pulled out a map that showed where the tribes of Israel had settled, you would see that, that Zebulun, that Naphtali are the, the, the northernmost of those tribes. They would have been the first tribes destroyed by the Assyrian army. They would have been the ones that felt the first waves of darkness roll across, where city after city reported mass casualties and destruction. It's the horror of waking up on 9-11 and seeing the reports, but then finding out on, on 9-12 that the next city has fallen, and reading the reports on 9-13 that another city has been destroyed. City after city, people slaughtered and killed. Darkness reigns. Then the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But it is into this this horrific situation that we read, verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Now, what has changed in Isaiah's circumstance? The threat from Assyria is still real. And yet, notice how he speaks. He speaks in the past tense as if it has already happened. You see, the prophecy is so vivid, is so real, is so certain for Isaiah that he can speak about something that is coming in the future as if it is already done. Because it is guaranteed by God. The people who are walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. The promise is secure and certain. And yet we're still left in our own times of darkness. In the times in which we face downsizing, uncertainty in our jobs and vocations. During times when we, when we have reports of, of, of dreaded illnesses getting worse. A time of year when we're reminded of those that we have lost. And we're confronted with broken relationships. We see the darkness all around us. We're left with those questions. 
questions about life, questions about our own faith. You can point in your own life to those moments where you cried out to God, why? Why is there so much darkness? Why has this happened? But you see what Isaiah is telling us. The darkness is real. The darkness is true, but it is only part of the truth. Because there is an intervention from God. God promises light and God gives the victory. We see how these images of of light and darkness then shift in verse 3 to an image of victory. The image turns to the the battles of war. That God is, is enlarging the nation. He is prospering the people. Just as they would rejoice at the harvest, they're now rejoicing. Just as they rejoice when when peace has come, when they gain victory over their enemies, they rejoice now. And then look at verse 4. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, God, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them. You've broken the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. He's saying, God, you are the one doing all of this work. Every warrior's boot used in battle, every garment rolled in blood will be destined for the burning. God is gaining the victory. Now again, there's a a historical note in verse 4. For as in the day of Midian's defeat. And you might think, you know, I've, I've read through the Bible some. I remember some of the Sunday school lessons. Which one is Midian? Which of those places do these people come from? The, the Midianites are, are nomadic people that, have, that, that, that earlier in the history of Israel oppressed the people. And so, so you can, we'll come back to Isaiah, but you can flip with me to, to, the, to the book of Judges chapter 6. So we can see the context of, of what, is, what is Isaiah hoping for? He's hoping for a rescue that comes from God that is not dependent upon human response, but is entirely God's gracious work. Because when we turn to Judges chapter 6, that's, that's toward the beginning of your Bible from where we're at in Isaiah, we, we, are, we are with the people having been freed from Egypt, but they're in a land where they have no peace. And the book of Judges is a, a series of, of sad rebellion against God, and yet God intervenes. And so he raises up a, a man named Gideon who will fight the Midianites. But, but we have in Judges 6 a description of what was happening in the land. Look at, look at verse 5 of Judges 6. The Midianites came with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count the men and their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. The army is too numerous to count, like a plague of locusts sweeping across the land, and so the people cry out, for help. Now look at Judges 6 verse 11. God will respond. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash, the Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. All right. Now I have never had to thresh wheat on a threshing floor, nor have I crushed grapes in a wine press. But I know enough to know that switching it is doing it wrong. Because the, 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 the threshing floor would be a, would be a flat area of, of bedrock out in the open so that as you crush the wheat, the chaff that you want to get rid of will be blown away by the wind. The problem is if you are Gideon and you are out in the open, then what will happen to you if you are threshing wheat? 
you are an easy target for Midianite marauders. And so what does he do? He goes and hides back up closer to the village where it will be hard to actually separate wheat from chaff, but, but you can use the bedrock here of the wine press. So God sends an angel to a man who is hiding to bring victory. God is going to use Gideon to bring victory. Now, now look at what happens in verse 12 of Judges 6. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, remember, Gideon who is hiding, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, I don't, think, I don't think the angel is saying that in the sarcastic way that I might be tempted to hear it in my head. Oh, mighty warrior who's back here hiding, you're not even willing to thresh, to, 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 to sort out your wheat out in the open. But God is calling Gideon a mighty warrior. But look at the response in verse 13 of Gideon. But sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why? Has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. See, when Isaiah turns us back in history to the time of the Midianites' defeat, he, he takes us to the same, the, the, the same circumstances of utter darkness where the people cry out, why? Why, if you are the God who can bring victory, has this happened? happened to us. And yet God defeats the Midianites through the ministry of Gideon. Gideon, who is here hiding. But God's spirit in verse 34, if you jump ahead in chapter 6 of Judges, the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Now, even with the spirit of the Lord upon him, what does Gideon do? He asks for a sign. And maybe this is the part you remember from your Sunday school lessons. God sent an angel to announce this message to him. And Gideon says, no, I'd like a real sign. I would like this fleece to be wet in the morning, but the ground all dry. You just sent an angel from heaven, God, but I would like you to do this little experiment for me. And when God complies, and he wrings out the, 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 uh, the, the wool in the morning, he says, well, you know, maybe there was some sort of meteorological occurrence that could explain this, and so let's flip it. Do it the other way. Now I want the ground wet and the, I want the fleece to be dry. This is who God is using to bring victory. God who is hiding at the beginning, a, God who, a, 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 a man who is hiding at the beginning, God uses him. A man who doubts God's power. And then when, when Gideon is able to, to amass a large army of 32,000 to go and fight the Midianites, God says in chapter 7, verse 2, the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands. See, God is all through this saying, I'm the one who's going to gain the victory. And so God winnows out the people so that Gideon is left with only 300 men. That's not an army. They can't accomplish the task that it's in front of them. Oh, because they won't have to. They blow their trumpets at night. They, they break pottery, and God causes chaos so that God uses the swords of the Midianites to kill each other. That's how God gains the victory. So that by the end of chapter 8, at the end of, of Gideon's life, we read in verse 28 of, of Judges 8, Thus Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise its head again. During Gideon's lifetime, the land enjoyed peace for 40 years. 
So when Isaiah says, as in the day of Midian's defeat, you, God, are the one that shattered the bows. You, God, are the one that, that won the victories. Do you see in Isaiah's prophecy, God is the actor. God is the one doing the work. God is the one guaranteeing the victory. The victory has come from God even, even through a, a rebellious man like Gideon. Because we're reminded that the darkness is not only out there. The darkness is not only what surrounds us. There's a darkness within us. We are those who have rebelled against God, as in the day of Midian's defeat, those days when people did whatever they want, whatever they thought was right in their own eyes, when people continued to rebel against God. In the midst of that darkness, God has spoken. And you might expect as this prophecy builds, that the promise that God will bring light, that God will give victory, that the image that we will have as the choir sang for us, that the image will be that of a conquering king, a warrior who arrives on the scene. But what is the promise? Verse 6, now perhaps it's, it's too familiar to us. You know the end of the story, and so the surprise has been taken away. God is going to bring victory over the forces of darkness and evil in this world. How will he do it? Verse 6, for to us a child is born. To us, a son is given. The, the emphasis in this verse in, in, the, in the Hebrew, scholars tell us, is, is on the word child. That's how the sentence begins. A child has been given. But how? How does this help us? It's because of who this child is. He is the son of God, the one who entered into our lives who was born of Mary, Jesus, the promised Messiah, the one who will reign forever on David's throne. So when we ask the question, why, why did this happen? Our answer is found here in the hope of Christmas. Mez McConnell, he, he continues, he says, when, when asking those questions, why is God allowing all this to happen? I mean, what is going on? Is God asleep at the wheel? Does he not see my pain and misery? Why doesn't he just do something about it? If he is so loving, why is he letting innocence suffer? Why doesn't God intervene? But Mez continues. Because after he had been harmed, he, he turned that violence out on others. He ended up in prison but a church served in that prison and announced the gospel to them. A church welcomed him into their midst. And so, so Mez heard the good news. And so he asked that question, why doesn't God just intervene? Well, there is some good news. God has stepped in. God has intervened. See, that's the good news that we're hearing at Christmas. That when we shout why, we are not left without an answer. When we ask God, why won't you do something? We have the answer. God has done something. For to us, a child is born. To us, the son has been given. Man says, he says, Jesus was born in squalor, surrounded by animals and their filth. There was nothing romantic about the scene, nothing in the slightest. The single greatest event in human history, and there were no TV cameras to report it. There was no one standing there looking for a quote from Joseph. See, sometimes we ask what, what God has done, done for us. 
We ask that question, God, what have you done? When the real question is, what more could God do? Jesus has come to earth. God has come to earth. See, this Savior, this child came, not merely to be an inspirational story for us, not merely to show us the beauty of children and the blessing of God. This child came to carry the government of God's kingdom, to bring justice and righteousness, to set up a kingdom which will last forever. And in the New Testament, when these words of Isaiah are used, they're used to describe the ministry of Jesus, not merely to point us to his birth, for to us a child is born, but to point us to his ministry. If you turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, that's the first book of the New Testament, one of the four gospel writers, one of those who announced the good news of Jesus' arrival. Matthew tells the story of Jesus' birth, of the arrival of the angels, of the visit of the Magi. He shows us the baptism of Jesus, and then in chapter 4, after the temptation of Jesus, he takes us back to the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. Look with me at Matthew chapter 4, verse 13. Leaving Nazareth, Jesus went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. See, we sang the hymn already, A Little Town of Bethlehem. Why was Jesus born in Bethlehem? Because he is a descendant of David. That's the town of David. That is the royal city. Most of, much of Jesus' ministry is, is spent in Jerusalem where he will give his life the, the, the th- where the throne of the king was, where the temple of God was. But Jesus' ministry is spent here, near Capernaum, near the Sea of Galilee, in the land, Matthew tells us, of Zebulun and Naphtali. Matthew 4, verse 14, because this was to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. See, the Messiah has come. The promised return from exile is here. The fulfillment of all of the promises of Isaiah are found in Jesus, in his birth and in his ministry. Jesus has come to be a light to the nations, a light to the Gentiles. Jesus has come to make the gospel known to everyone. He has come to be the king. He's come to bring God's kingdom. And that's what Jesus says in verse 17 of Matthew chapter 4. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of God is near. And so we ask, why? Why did Jesus come? He came to bring the kingdom of God. He came to give himself in the place of sinners. Jesus came to die for us so that we might repent. We might turn from sin, turn from the darkness of sin, and turn to the glorious light of Jesus. We might turn away from living for ourselves and acknowledge the goodness and wonder and majesty of Jesus the Savior. So put your hope today in Jesus. The light has dawned. See, why why did Jesus come? Mez McConnell admits that he doesn't have all of the answers to all of his questions can't really fully explain the horrors of even his own childhood. 
He knows that, 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 that to try and explain it to you might, might sound simplistic. But when he asks that question, why did God allow this to happen? He says, I discovered the ans- that the answers to all of my whys, why would God allow this to happen? The answer to all of my whys were tied up in the answer to all of Jesus's whys. Why did Jesus come to earth? Why did he allow himself to be humiliated? Why did he put himself through the torture of being rejected? You see, Jesus has come. We were trapped in darkness, and yet light is now here. We are those who live with the eager expectation that the fullness of the, of the coming kingdom will come. We cry out for justice and righteousness. We, we know that one day those who have sinned against us will be held accountable before God. And yet we, in that moment, recognize we will be found guilty except for the work of Jesus our Savior. Unless you put your trust in Jesus, you turn from your sin, then you too will be found guilty. See, but Jesus comes to bring his kingdom. The promised king is here. The Messiah has come. And and look again at the words of Isaiah. Listen again to the wonderful promises, the glorious riches of who this baby is. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, the one who brings words of comfort and hope. The assurance of our salvation comes through Jesus Christ. He is the mighty God. This helpless child is the almighty king with all power and authority. He's the everlasting father, the one who reigns in the, in the, in the kingdom of his father, the one who, who cares for us the way his father cares for us. Jesus is the prince of peace, the one who guarantees the victory and welcomes us into God's kingdom. And so Advent is a season in which, yes, we rejoice in what God has already done for us in Jesus, but we long for the coming of his kingdom, for the fullness of his righteousness and justice and holiness to be revealed. Because there is coming a day where there will be no more darkness. There will be no more fear of the creaking of the stairs. Because Jesus is the light of the world. The Savior has come. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, our tears flow freely for many of us in this season of the year in which we feel such great sorrow and sadness. Lord, we long for those that we miss, those who have preceded us in death. Lord, we feel the the heartache and heartbreak of broken relationships. And so, Lord, I pray that you would wipe away our tears, that you would give us a certain hope, a guaranteed promise that Jesus is the Savior who is coming again. Lord, for those who feel the weight of of their questions, who cry out to you, why? Lord, I pray that you would point them to Jesus and the hope of the gospel. Lord, for those listening today who have not come to faith in Jesus Christ as Savior, I pray that you will do that work in them now. That even as this service concludes, as we hear the scriptures, as we sing together, that they would come now to a place of acknowledging Jesus to be their Savior.
the rescuer, their king. Lord, we rejoice that you are the God who is at work. And so we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.